0: Last week, I took ten kids to a, a Taekwondo to s- a tournament in Southern California. Two of them earned uh, these trips to Great America because they got two gold medals each. Um, which they they did worse than years past, uh, unfortunately. Because before, I used to have more kids that did that. But it's I think it's because this tournament is like growing. It's like over eighteen hundred kids. So, um, so so we're good. So yeah, we got two kids. And I saved a lot of money, so, so I left. Uh, I left last Friday, right, to drive down to Southern California on that beautiful stretch of highway between the Bay Area and Southern California called the Five. It's, it's gorgeous. It's so beautiful. If you've never done it, you've got to do it. It's so beautiful. And that, that is one ugly stretch of highway. That is, it's just bad, right? Part. Now, parts of the five going north, that's that's pretty, but going south from here, it, it, there's nothing pretty about that thing, right? And it, it's not even just the sight, but the smells are bad too. It's just, no, I've never met anyone that has ever said, "Now that that was a gorgeous drive," that that one. Right. And I've driven that freeway literally over a hundred times in in my lifetime. i I've literally driven that. I've never thought, like, oh, this is God's creation, you know. It's just... Now, some of you can tell that I'm from Southern California because only we call the five the five. It's the five. And um, others use more formal terminology, right? They They say I-5 or Interstate 5 or whatever. But because us Southern Californians spend over half of our lifetimes on freeways, we have this endearing bond. To, to it, to the freeways, and, and we give them informal names, and, and we precede all freeway names with the. So sometimes we even drop the, and we just use the number, five, get on the, on five. And so, so you see that uh, we Southern California, how many are, of you are from Southern California, by the way? There's quite a few. So, so you know what I'm saying, right? Like, you know what I'm saying, and um, we, we, it, it's because it's like it's family, we spend so much time with this. We, we, don't, we don't need those formal introductions like interstate or highway or route. Right? We, 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 so we get to the tournament from here and all we'd say is take 580 uh, to, to the 5 to the 210 to 57. Right? We, don't, we don't have to go into interstate and all that. That's it. It's, it's really simple. Now, without my daughters, that trip takes six hours. With my daughters, that's a 10-hour trip. And that's a story for another time. <laughs> but in order for me to get home from there, right, I, I have to turn around. I have to turn around and head back up north. And that's what I did last Sunday. I, I had to eventually head north to come home. And that's kind of what it's like with sin, See, that in order for us to head home to God, we have to turn around. We we have to make a, a change there. And that's essentially what the concept of repentance is. It's to turn around, change your direction, have an about face, and, and go the other way. And, and unless we do that, there's no way home to God because you just keep going the wrong direction. And you just keep going further and further and further. And that's what we find here in John's proclamation in, John, in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we're going to just do the first 20 verses here. So let me read verses 1 through 6 to start us off. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John came into the world proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This seems to be a, a really important thing for Luke, the author of our text this morning, to record. This seems to be the key note, the thing that matters more than any other thing happening at the world at this time is this. Is, this is the important thing. Luke knew exactly what was happening at the world at this time. He, He knew what was going on in religion, he knew what was going on in politics, he knew what was going on in the news, and he mentioned all the movers and shakers of this time, right? So if you look at this from a political standpoint, he mentions Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. And so he knew who the heavy hitters of the political world were here, and he mentions them in verse 1. And then he goes on to mention the religious leaders of the world there also. He mentions them in verse 2. He mentions Annas and Caiaphas. Now those were the religious guys in charge at the time. But in the midst of all these key political figures and key religious figures, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And what was that word? It was the word of repentance word of repentance John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins we read that in verses 4 through 6 that's what was meant in the Isaiah chapter 40 where where these verses are from when a voice cries out in the wilderness Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 and 4 it's the same thing as what is said in Luke a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. What is being shared there is is a way being prepared for the Lord. Now what Luke is saying is, the preparing for the way of the Lord isn't just a geographical thing. It's a heart thing. It's in the heart of people. And it's not political change. It's not religious change. It's change within the heart. And the heart must be prepared. That's what the gospel of repentance is all about. It's heading back home to God. And repentance is connected to an Old Testament root. It's the verb turn or return. It's not just a matter of emotions or feelings or or just being sorry. Repentance also involves a a directional change, a change of direction, a turning around and about face. And in repentance, we do experience remorse, we do experience sorrow, but that's not the essence of repentance. It's not just feelings, it's not just emotions, it's turning, and that's what the gospel begins with. It tells us, hey, you're going the wrong way, right? If you want to come home, turn around, repent, do an about-face, come back. And so you see that that God loves you. He wants you home. He's wooing you back home. And He doesn't want sin to condemn us to judgment. He wants forgiveness of sin for you. So our loving God starts this gospel with, turn around. Turn around. Don't keep going the wrong way. And I know that there are negative connotations to the word repent. People don't like to hear that word. Um, especially... If they're if they're just not familiar with that word, like Christians, we throw that out, and it's easy. You know, it's easy to swallow. But if you throw it out to someone that doesn't isn't familiar with that, that that's really hard to take. You need to repent. What? It's offensive, right? It, it doesn't seem to have that positive side to it, does it? Repent. Oh yeah, right. It, it doesn't have that. It, it's it's kind of negative, but it actually is really good news. It's really good news. At least the, uh, Luke seems to think so, right? In, in verse 18, he says, So with many other exhortation, he preached good news to the people. That it was counted as an exhortation. It was counted as good news. And the call to repent was good news. And to some of us, it may sound negative, but if we're told what is necessary to receive forgiveness of sins and not face God's judgment, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that good news? Isn't isn't that a positive thing? At least you know. You know. God's not just being quiet about it and letting you go on your own way. You're told what is necessary to to head home. And so as I'm getting ready for work, you know, I have breakfast. I brush my teeth. I shave. I do my hair. I put on my shirt. I put on my jacket, socks, and shoes. I, I grab my computer bag. I start heading out the door until my wife says, wait, turn around. You don't have pants on. Right? Now I could stop, I could put my computer back down and say, you know what, I am tired of you criticizing me. I am tired of you telling me how I should dress for work. You're always telling me what to do. But that's not something I would do if I was made aware of my barren state. Right? If I knew I had lack, I would probably say, Thanks. Right? And I'm, I'm really glad you pointed that out to me. Uh, that was a really courageous thing for you to point out. Because it was a personal thing to point out something that wasn't quite right in me. Even though it's a personal thing, it was for my benefit. Right? That, that was an act of kindness. That was, that was not judgment. That was an act of kindness. Even though I might react differently. Like, well, fine. Right? Like, I, I want to do it this way and and go meet up on a counseling appointment. But but it's kindness, right? It's kindness. A call to repentance is an act of kindness. And unfortunately, many Christians don't present it in that way. We don't present it in a kind way. And many many who receive an invitation don't receive it this way because we don't deliver it in that way. But that that's what it is. It's it's an act of kindness. And it's the way to have forgiveness of sin. It's the it's way to have an advocate on our behalf, right? Jesus Christ, from God's judgment as our advocate. It, it, and it goes through repentance. It goes through repentance. The call to repentance is kindness. And God, God is calling us to it so we can be delivered, so we can be forgiven. Now, the cruel thing for God to do would just be silent about it. Not point it out, just let you keep going the wrong way. And like, yeah, he's going the wrong way. That's great. Be silent about it. Not say anything. Don't let us know that we're going the wrong way. Not send anyone to tell us that we forgot our pants. That, there he goes. Just pantless. Right? And so the gospel starts by God's kindness and calling us in repentance. And we don't do this call for repentance much nowadays because I think we're afraid of coming across as judgmental which is why I'm really excited about Mark's class because he's done a lot of thinking about this, a lot of thinking about how we've done evangelism and, and he's come up with this curriculum and I'm really excited that he's doing this because I think this is going to help us. And, but I can see why we're so hesitant at times and I can see why we don't want to at times. But this is the first thing that's presented in the gospel and this is something that we have to be mindful of and having that call to repentance come across kindly that's what it is. Romans chapter two verse four says, "God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It takes understanding, it takes care to call someone to repentance. Right? And it's hard for someone to accept that they need pants if you're just a jerk telling them that they need pants. Get your pants on. No. I'd rather go out naked than listen to you. Right? I, it comes across that way sometimes, you know. Like, oh, you need to repent. You need to accept Jesus. No, you're a jerk. I don't want to be with you, right? It's, it's and it's it's true. It's true. I need pants, but people don't want to be listened. They'd rather be in their naked state than trying to and, and and do their job and do whatever else they do in life than listen to a jerk telling them that they need pants. It's just human nature. I'm like that. I'm, I, if you told me something that I absolutely needed, but you said it in such a way that is I, I can't receive it, I'd rather be, go around do being defective. I'd rather be a defective, pantless preacher guy or something than you telling me, right? So when, when you tell someone the gospel, it's, it's basically a criticism. You're criticizing them. It is an analysis of them, and it is an assessment. It's a critique, right? It's, a, it's an assessment. And whenever we do that, we risk... A negative response because it's a personal thing you know we're, we are making this assessment on them so so we have this one-way street right out here in front right east 15th it, it goes this way by the way um, but every several weeks you can just camp out here and I think the staff and the interns know this if, if you've been there here someone always goes the other way always in a car not walking or by, in a car Right and, and whenever I witness this, I, I I tell them, turn around, it's one way. Like I'm trying to tell them, right? It's for their benefit to go the other way. But most of the, the t- most of the time I'm just ignored. Like <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? It's one way. And, and and even though I'm telling them a good thing for their benefit, sometimes I even get negative responses. Right? Like someone's driving and saying, no. Nah, 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 nah. Right? Or or they're just about like, mind your own business. Like, You're going the wrong way. I even have gotten flipped off from telling people to, that's it's a one way street. What are you flipping me off for? Get hit by a car. You know, like so but then there are very few times that people actually listen. Very few. Twice maybe. Out of like dozens of cars I've seen, maybe twice, where someone has actually said, oh, thank you, and they turn into our parking lot, and they turn around, and they turn around, and they go the right way, or they go in a way that they were supposed to go to wherever they were going. Now, people don't tend to like evaluations on themselves, even if they're going down the wrong way on a one-way street. It is obvious, right? It's so obvious. You might die, right? And, and so people just don't like evaluations on themselves, especially when it comes to driving. They just they don't, right? People are very sensitive about their driving. And, but the gospel starts out by challenging people to change, right? Go the right way. Turn around. Change. Change directions. Change this, this way of, of where you're going. It's, it's obvious you're going the wrong way. You might die. You will die here. If you keep going this way. You need to change directions. And the call to repentance isn't something we talk about much in the church today or proclaim it to people. And some of us might not know how to do it. So let's take a look at how John did it here in verses 7 and 8. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, don't go out calling people names. That's not what this text is saying. It's not saying, You brood of vipers. It's not telling you to go point people out and tell them that, you know, You idiot, repent, or something like that. It's not, nothing like that. My, my um, two-and-a-half-year-old, she, uh, she's developing her vocabulary. And so she wants to say bad things sometimes because she's so mad. So she's like, "You, you funny guy! You funny guy!" Right? I I love it, even even though the heart's all wrong, it's poisonous and it's sinful. You know, because if she had a different word, she'd probably say something else. But but it's like funny It's so funny. It's funny, funny guy. And so, how does John instruct us? on this idea of repentance. See, see, John points out sincerity. He points out being genuine. There there were those in the crowd who apparently came in verse 7 and in the beginning of verse 8, they came to be baptized by John at that Jordan River there. And John didn't think that they were genuine. He didn't think that they were sincere. And John thought that they were just doing this to go through the religious motions and, and to cover their religious bases, to go through the act of baptism without the significance of what that baptism meant. So he called them out on them. He called them snakes. He called them, you brood of funny guys. And um, so then in verse 8, John told them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Meaning fruits worthy of your repentance. To produce something in your life that, that shows that there is really genuine repentance in your heart. And John was concerned that the repentance wasn't real. That what he was seeing there were just people that just were wanting to get wet. And it was a repentance that was just going through the motions without any spiritual depth to it, without any spiritual transformation within. And John knew that it had to be a baptism of repentance, of the heart, not just this outward exercise of getting wet. Now there's a danger for religious people to take on these external ceremonies these external rites or sacraments like baptism or communion or these other external things and and put it as a substitute in place of a substance what something really means Now let me try to give you an analogy one that many of us have had firsthand experience with You're on the road you're behind someone who has their turn signal on Let's just say right turn signal. So, according to California law, they're to do something within 25 feet of that turn signal. Right? Either turn onto another street or exit the freeway or do something that that signal signifies that they should do. That's the proper thing. See the sign? It's flashing turn signal. Corresponds with the following action a turn right the actual turning onto another street or the actual turning off of an off-ramp the action suitably corresponds to the sign the sign signified right signified signified the turn and then the turn happened and there's an action that corresponds to the visible sign right what happens when you're behind someone on the freeway or the road and that right turn signal is on? You expect them to turn. You're, you purposely don't pass them because you think they're going to turn, right? You, you're waiting. Or if you're, you're on the freeway, you're like, oh, well, he's going to get off so I can go. And, but, but they're driving 55 and you're like, okay, he didn't exit. He didn't exit. That turn signal's on though, right? And you're just behind them and you're like, what? why don't they just turn it off? That signal is on. It's indicating, it's signaling that they're going to exit or they're going to turn right, but they don't. What's going on? And this just happened to me last week a couple of times. The right turn signal was on for at least three exits. It could have been on for more, but I exited after that and I don't know, but, but that was an empty sign, it was a totally empty sign. What John is saying is that if it's just about getting wet, if it's just about putting something in your mouth, if it's just going through the motions, the religious motions, that's nothing. That's an empty sign. Your baptism is a flashing light. You're taking communion is a flashing light. You go into church, is a flashing light. There's no signify, there's no signaling of What's happening in your heart? And John didn't want these guys to come and just get baptized by him because it was just the thing to do. Hey, there's this guy. It's, a, it's the newest thing. Check out. New church plan. Hey, everyone come here. Right? Whatever. Oh, exciting. Fancy things. All this stuff. Come check it out. He didn't want that. Right? He didn't want these guys to just come by and, and, and check out the, the new thing. He wanted people who were genuinely seeking a baptism of repentance. Something deeper, not just to check out a spectacle, right? And not just going through religious motions, not just going to church, just to go to church on a Sunday. What are you doing there? What are you doing there? If, if, you're, if, if the preacher's there and, and he's great and he's doing all this stuff, or, or things are really great, worship music's great, but you just go and nothing happens to you, who cares? Who cares? Something needs to change inside of you that you need to do something. So even if the message is terrible or the worship is terrible, but you've been activated to do something, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You're not here to get entertained. Right? You're here, you're here to change. You're here for the Holy Spirit to change your life. not here to get entertained. And sometimes we get in this consumer mindset. We want to come here and we want to critique things like, oh, this was this and this was that. We're not a restaurant. We're not a retail store. I don't care about that. You know what I I liken it to? If we want to liken it to food, it's a home-cooked meal. Now, when you go to your friend's house, do you critique your your friend's mom like, "Mm, too much salt in that? And the things that his dad was saying, like, some of it was good, but some of it wasn't. And, like, it didn't make sense to me. And, and the house was dirty. And, and, like, why didn't they stock the toilet paper in their bathroom? Like, and you don't write this whole reveal about going to someone's house. You come to their house, they show you hospitality, they, they try to show you all this stuff, they try to feed you a good meal, they have good conversation, they talk about things, they, they want to find out who you are, and they want to see how, how they can kind of like bless you and stuff like that. You don't go around writing reviews on that. You don't go around critiquing those things. If you critique, you can critique one-on-one, but it's not it's not a restaurant. It's not a retail store to be like, oh, let's let's... Let's let's talk about that church and what's good and what's bad and all this other stuff. That's fine. Talk about it one-on-one with whoever you have an issue with. Build a relationship. Develop something. But don't just blanket it out there like that. So, I mean, religious people. It's so hard to get along with. John wanted to seek a genuine... Sincere baptism of repentance. Not just going through the religious motions of things. Not just kind of going through religious life. We have to be careful not to substitute those outward appearances of a religious sacrament for the reality that is happening inside of our hearts. And among religious people, some some may think that because they were once baptized, that was it. I was baptized before. Now I have a relationship with Jesus. I've repented. Not necessarily. Sorry to burst your bubble. Not necessarily. And some may think that because they have some biblical truth, you know, they've heard some sermons or, or they have some biblical understanding because they've read the Bible a little bit, that that equates to a relationship with Jesus or, or that there's been repentance there. Not necessarily. Some may think that because they have some affiliation with, with a church whatever that church may be or you're you're part of a church or you attend a church that means you have this relationship with Jesus and you've repented not necessarily see those aren't necessarily signs of repentance The sincerity, the genuineness of repentance needs to show. It needs to be evident in our lives. It's not just simply going through the religious motions of of what you did and what you didn't do. In the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9, John tells us about the necessity of repentance. Let me read that to you. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John knew where some of the critics were going to go with this stuff, and as soon as he calls them to repentance and to show him the the to the, the challenge them to show evidence of it, he knew that they were going to contend with him, that they were going to contend with that they don't have to repent because Abraham's our dad. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, Abraham was the covenant head of Israel, or is the covenant head of Israel. He is the one who received God's promise, and he is the patriarch of the covenant nation of Israel. Now, what they're saying is that they have his blood in them, right? We have his DNA, we are his offspring, and so we are the covenant people of Israel, and we've descended from him, so we're all good. We don't need to do this stuff, just get us wet. We're already set. We already got it. But John shares with them the necessity of repentance and tells them, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What does John mean by that? He's telling them that even though you are God's covenant people, he knew that, there there still needs to be a repentance from your heart. You still need to repent. You don't just automatically get a send through, right? And that was the mentality of some of the Jews at that time. There was diversity of thought on things, and one of the thoughts was that God's wrath was reserved for Gentiles. It was reserved for pagans, non-Jewish people, and Israel was Israel was in. They didn't have to worry about it. Some of them thought like, hey, "We don't have to worry. We're not non. We're not pagans. We're not non-Jewish. You know, we're in." So one of the pictures they had was Abraham sitting at the at the gate of Gehenna, right to hell. And he was there in order to, to turn, turn back the Jews, the covenant people, and deliver any Israelite that was coming or heading down the gate, and, and he was there to send them the other way. So you get, you get to understand their thinking. Like, we're, we're set. I mean, Abraham's even at the gate. He's going to warn us if we're heading that way anyway. So, like, big deal. And if you are Abraham's descendant by blood, then, then you're exempt from judgment. And that's kind of, kind of like people who, who try to get out of traffic tickets, right? Who, who have a relative in law enforcement or who have a really good friend. They get pulled over and they say, hey, officer, hey, how are you doing? Um, hey, do you happen to know so-and-so? Right? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's my best friend. Or yeah, that's my cousin. Or yeah, that's my uncle or whatever. And, and it might work sometimes. Why? Because of who they are right they're exempt because they know someone who knows them and this type of mentality was among some of those who are hearing john's message then right we know officer abraham do you know him you know him he's like captain right and, and that ticket doesn't apply to me you you can tear it up right i, I don't stand under god's judgment do i for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It doesn't mean anything. You need to repent even though you are Abraham's offspring. Right? There's no free passes. And that's a, that's a criticism that John had for the Jews and, and to have this baptism of repentance. In Israel, if, if someone wanted to become a Jew who wasn't a Jew, uh, one of the things that they had to do was they would have to go through this proselyte baptism. That was one of the things. And... There are other things that they have to do. If you're a male, you had to get circumcised and all this other stuff. But this is one of the signs was this baptism. And they'd go through this baptism to have this status as a Jew. And what John is saying to the Jews is, you need to have a sign of repentance on you. You need to be baptized like a non-Jew. To be identified with someone that has a repentant heart. Now this is radical stuff. Can you imagine telling this to Abraham's kids? Who for generations have heard this stuff like, We're good. We're good, get baptized what what we 're god 's covenant people we don 't need to do that stuff we don 't need to get baptized we don 't need no stinking baptism and they needed a baptism of repentance, and some Jews were trying to get away from this repentance by saying they were they were fine because you know we 're from Abraham's seed, and some of us have these different excuses as to why we don't repent don't we? We have different excuses where we 're from or 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 whatever. Some may say, like, I'm royal. I'm royal. And, and a lot of the royal nob- nobility in years past when they, they were called the sovereign, thinking that, that that kind of precludes them from any of that stuff. Just like Herod Antipas did in verses 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. See, Herod was the ruler. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee. John rebuked Herod because Herod took his brother uh, Philip's wife Herodias. And Herod took her for his own wife and he lived in adultery with her. And John told him, it's wrong. And he told him some other things about his character as well. And Herod didn't think submitting to God was for him. right? That, that no one can tell him what to do. And, and so he put John in prison. I'm royalty. I don't have to do that stuff. Or, I'm from this lineage, I don't have to do this stuff. Or whatever other excuse you have for not repenting. I I don't have to because of such and such. See, all the the thinking's the same. The thinking's all the same. That repentance doesn't apply to me because I have such and such a reason. I am who I am and I don't fall under those rules, but we all fall under God's rules. We all follow under God's law. None of us are exempt. It doesn't matter what the grounds we are trying to use to try to evade God's law. We have to change our direction. We have to turn around. What does John say in verse 8? And do not begin to say to yourselves. That's a really profound thing there. In other words, don't say that this doesn't apply to you. This applies to you. Don't Try to think yourself out of this thing. Don't try to make excuses and say to yourself why this doesn't apply to you. And there's a necessity of repentance, no matter who we are. As as John showed us this necessity of repentance, he also shows us the clarity of repentance in verses ten through fourteen. Let's read that. And the crowds asked him, "What then shall we do?" And he answered them, "Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise." Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Repentance can be seen. It's something that's tangible. It's something that's visible. It's not just something that happens on the inside. It's not all emotions and feelings. It also has to deal with what we do. What we do. Our behavior. Our actions. Those things are linked to repentance. It's not just about remorse and sorrow. There is something that is attached to it that you do. You take a look at verses 10, 12, and 14. What are the questions those people are asking? What shall we do? What shall we do? They're asking, what shall we do? Did I say, what shall we do yet? John tells them in verse 11, to do likewise. What is, what is meant by do? What is, what is all this do stuff, right? Well, if, if there is repentance, how is that going to be shown? Right, well, what are some of the fruits that demonstrate repentance and show us to turn? That show us that a turnaround has taken place. To show us that an about face has taken place. And God gives us, not God. John gives us some of these examples of doing. He gives us these examples here. It's not an all-inclusive list, but there are three examples here. And John is telling them to do right where they are at. Right? John doesn't give us a point-by-point list of what to do. He doesn't say, eat locusts and wild honey, wear camel hair, wear, wear a leather belt, be a hippie, and, and if it's yellow, let it mellow. He's not doing all that stuff. Right? He, he doesn't give instructions like that. He says, do likewise. Do likewise. The realm of repentance takes place where you're at. Right where you're at. In, in your ordinary life, right where you're at is where it takes place. So in verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics. Now, these tunics were these long undergarments worn beneath just regular clothes. And he says, is to share with him who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, John isn't suggesting that there's some government social action that everyone shares and everything. He's not even suggesting that churches do this. He's simply saying, as an individual person in your heart, if your heart is turned around before God, repentance will be shown in your generosity. Right? Your selfishness is not going to consume you. You're, 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 there's no guilt tripping here and say, like, oh, you have more, give this. It's nothing like that. It's, if your heart has changed, you'll, you'll care about the needs of someone who doesn't have something that you have. Your heart will change, you'll, you'll give him one. The very basic thing, and you'll notice that it leaves a lot of room for creativity, right? It's not just saying, like, give clothes only. This is just an example. There's a ton of room of things that you have that other people don't. And John is also saying that if there's real repentance, it also addresses covetousness. So, so repentance cuts away at selfishness, verse 11, and it also cuts away at covetousness, verse 13. Verse 13. And instead of having covetous attitudes, there will be an honest attitude. In verse 12, we have these tax collectors asking, what shall we do? Now, tax collectors, they're like toll booth agents or toll booth collectors, right? They collect stuff. They collect money. It's not so much like income tax, right? But these guys were charging more than they were commissioned to charge or collect so that these guys would live well. So it's like you going to the Bay Bridge. The toll is I don't know twenty dollars right now, and instead they charge you forty. Like, but it's twenty. No, you're going forty, or you're not going to go. And so it was kind of like that, you know. Like uh, I thought I was only supposed to pay ten shekels. No, it's twenty. And if you don't, I got big Bubba over here. He's going to take care of some business, and we're going to take. We're going to read into that in the next verses there too. And so they had these really bad reputations, but even some of them came and, and were baptized and repenting. And in repentance, how does that look in your life? What do we do as recovering tax collectors? And you notice that John didn't tell them, you're in an ungodly profession. Are you, in order to keep your faith, you've you got to leave it. You can't do that anymore. Give up your job and, and go into ministry. I would not advise that, but... So, but he didn't say that. Right? He, he told them in verse 13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Do not charge any more, anyone any more than what you were told to charge them. Be honest. right? You're not going to live as comfy. Your kids aren't going to have the newest iPods. But hey, you're honest. Do what's honest. Do what's right. And repentance is going to cut at that covetousness and show itself in honesty. And it was something they could do right there right then, where they were at, in their profession. Then in verse 14, John gives us another example. Soldiers also asked him, And what, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now these guys, these soldiers, weren't, were more, more than likely not Roman soldiers. These were Jewish soldiers. And, and more than likely, they were kind of accompanying the tax collectors as kind of like their bodyguards. Because right? they would take money from people, and so they were despised, they were hated, and they needed some protection. And so the tax collector would probably give some extra money to these guys as well. And they asked, what shall we do? And more than likely, they right here, they're identifying themselves as Jews like the other two examples. So I don't think that these guys are Roman soldiers. These are Jewish type of soldiers or police, and they had this quasi-military function here. And, and these these guys... These guys were accompanying the tax collectors, right? It makes sense. These, these guys were coming together to be baptized and to repent. Now, so these guys ask John, what, what, what shall we do? These bodyguard soldier guys. And John tells them, don't intimidate people. Right? The verse is telling them to stop making people shake. Right, shaking them down to get more money out of them. And this would especially make sense if these guys were with the tax collectors, working with them, because if they didn't pay, then be like, hey, go 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 take care of this guy. He's not giving us money. And so John was telling them, Don't intimidate anyone. Don't falsely accuse people, don't bully them. Be content with your wages. Be content with what you have. That's what, that's what John's counsel was with for them. In other words, repentance cuts away at intimidation. It cuts away at manipulation. It shows itself in gentleness. It shows itself in contentment. And so these are just a few examples. It's not an all-inclusive list of what repentance is. But you get the principle. It's right where you're at. Right? The principle is that repentance is not seen by, by doing extraordinary things in your life, but it's in, it's living in your ordinary, everyday life in a transformed way. That's what it is, by the help of the Holy Spirit, and you apply that principle into your life. Living your life, everyday, ordinary life, just living your ordinary life, is where repentance is going to be shown. In, in all the different circumstances that are in front of you, and how you handle those things that 's where it will be seen it 's not it 's not the extraordinary things of your life like oh i 've repented because i 've done this huge thing that I thought would never happen it 's in your day to day. I have a friend that was addicted to a, a ton of things drugs uh, uh, alcohol sex violence and, and the biggest change that his family. Uh, noticed initially, wasn't some extraordinary thing. It was that he sat down to have dinner with them. Never did that before. His paycheck wasn't spent on those addictions like he used to spend it on after work. The the, the evidence of his repentance was that he sat down to have dinner with his family. It's a small thing. Exactly. Exactly. It's on the everyday, ordinary things. It's not all this other stuff. He just simply had dinner with his family. Just the everyday stuff of a transformed life. That's the clarity of repentance. If there's a genuine repentance, there will be an evidence of it. Now in verses 15 through 17, John shares with us the urgency of repentance. You notice that John knows exactly who he is, and he knows exactly who he isn't. He knows he is not the Christ. The Messiah is the Christ, and he tells them who the Messiah is, who the Christ is. He tells them that he's not even worthy to untie that strap of a Messiah's sandal, which was the job of a slave, and it was a really low job. And John was saying that he wasn't even worthy to do that, a really low job that was left for a slave, and John knew he was the Messiah's forerunner. That was his job. Now for some of us, it might be helpful for us to remember that we are not the Messiah. Right? That, that only Jesus is the Messiah. That, and some of us may be struggling with our own burdens and also hearing the burdens of others and we feel the weight of that and we just get overwhelmed. And, and if we don't have the proper perspective of who God is, we, we tend to carry those things. But we're not Jesus. You can release that to him. And for those of you who, who may carry your burdens and everyone else's burdens, you're, you don't have to. You can be free of that. Right? You, you can be relieved of that. You can find comfort in knowing that you're not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He carries that. Now John, John's point in verse 17 is, is made through a threshing floor illustration. Oh, that was hard for me to say. Threshing floor. But this was typically flat. Right? And then this fork was stuck into it and the wheat was thrown up and the air would catch it and the chaff would blow away and the wheat, the grain would fall on the floor. And so this was the sifting process. This was the separation process. And John says, that's how the Messiah is going to be. He's going to come. He's going to be a sifter. He's going to be a separator of His people. He is going to divide and He's going to know who's going to be wheat and who is chaff. Now this is really serious stuff. Jesus is a divider. He separates. And even now until the second coming, He will separate. He sifts. He separates truth from false. Right? That's the urgency of repentance. There is a call to turn around if you haven't. To turn around to His barn as wheat so that you don't continue on the road that you're on and go away as chaff. Now some might think that, oh, those are just symbols, those are just symbols. Uh, yes, they are, but the reality is actually much more profound and real than in this dead prose that we're reading here. So we're seeing, we're, we're given this illustration, we're given this picture, but just because they are symbolic doesn't mean that they're not real. Salvation and judgment are real. To be with God and to not be with God, hell, is real. real. Wrath to come, unquenchable, un, unquenchable fire. Those things are just religious. How sick, how can you believe that stuff? How dated and archaic, that's, that's so yesteryear. Modernity doesn't believe in that garbage. That is old stuff. You can't believe, you guys can't possibly believe that. But there is a question that is asked in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 31. But what will you do when the end comes? comes what will you do when the end comes we all have to be pretty sure where we stand are you going home to God or are you going away to God how many of us here are are more concerned with resolutions than we are with repentance repentance Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How many of us are more concerned with being right and holding on to our positions, worldly positions, than submitting to the idea that we are on the road, heading the wrong way, and that we have a loving God who is telling us to turn around? How many of us are hardened towards God because we believe more of what the world tells us than what the Word of God tells us? We we are to live lives of repentance. We we have we've been given this gift of repentance. We've been given this good news. God gave us this map of how we can turn around, and that's good news. See see those things like people saying like I, I can't I can't believe that a loving God would would let people go to hell. It's your choice. He's not going to make you. You, you want to go down that road. He's, he is calling you to repentance. He's telling you to turn around. He's telling you to come home. That's not cruelty. Cruelty is just like, there he goes. I'm not going to do anything about it. He's just going to go on his own way. God didn't do that. God is calling us to repentance. He's calling us to turn around. He doesn't want you to go to hell. Hell is away from him. Right? Hell is just anywhere absent of God. Some of us have this idea of like, oh, it's just burning and torture and fire and all this stuff. Yes. That's what it is like away from God. It's the same thing as if my kids don't want to be at my house anymore and they take off. You just don't have the things that we have to offer in our home. Just like God's home, He has these things to offer. And outside of that is a different world. And that's a choice. But he's 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 asking you to return home. He's telling you to return home, to repent, to turn around. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness that calls us to repentance. Pray, Lord, for any of us who are harboring some pride or harboring something that is not allowing us to turn around. And I pray, Lord, for a softening of minds, a softening of hearts. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now, I just want you to repeat after me in this prayer. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for providing me a way to repent, to turn around, to head towards God instead of Heading the way that I was going, which was hell. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can just take the next steps of being a follower of yours. I pray, God, that you would uh, equip me with wisdom, with discernment on things that I choose to do, as repentance is not just what I'm feeling on the inside but what I do. So please show me the things that I need to do to show that I am repentant. In Jesus' name, amen.